Welcome everyone to another episode of the Goldust Podcast. If you haven't already, click subscribe and look out for new episodes releasing every other Friday. We hope everybody enjoyed our last episode with Dr. Noel Dempsey. Before we introduce today's podcast, we want to mention our partnership with clothing company Capo. The meaning behind the brand runs much deeper. The northwest of England clothing brand strives to provide premium, aesthetic fitting, and quality clothing at affordable prices. Why don't you check out their products at www.capouk.com on an Instagram at Capo UK. Today's podcast is different to any we've done previously. It's intended to generate a greater awareness of prostate cancer. In 2022, I was diagnosed with this condition and I've experienced many highs and lows. On my journey, today's guest, Mandy Bell, a Macmillan Euro-Oncology Clinical Nurse Specialist based at the Christie Hospital in Manchester has played an integral part in providing care and support for me during my challenging times. We hope you enjoy. Hi, Mandy. Hi. Hi, David. Hi, Mandy. How are you? Today's podcast, Mandy, is going to be slightly different for us. We generally ask a one question of every guest, but it's going to be a slightly different podcast and or before we start to unravel what it's all about perhaps you can just delve into and share a brief introduction about yourself and what you do for a living okay yeah so my name is mandy bell i'm a macmillan um, urology clinical nurse specialist at the christie hospital in manchester um i've worked here for six just over six years now um, but I've done similar roles at various hospitals in the in, in England um, over the last sort of 20 years or so, uh, predominantly within neurology. So, yeah, that's that's me. Well, this podcast, as mentioned, it's slightly different. It, it's about prostate cancer. And uh, I just want to share some stats, which I've got off the UK webs, Prostate Cancer UK website. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer in men. More than 52,000 men are diagnosed with prostate cancer every year. On average, that's 144 men every day. Every 45 minutes, one man dies from prostate cancer, and that's more than 12,000 men every year. One in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer in the lifetime, so it's it's a subject that's near and dear to me and something that I've that I've had, uh, which I'm now coming out public and to talk about it and to help me along this path, I've invited yourself to to share with me and also to answer some of the tech questions which may may come out. So I know where you work, but share with the, the listeners yeah. where you work. Yeah, so I work at the Christie Hospital in Manchester, which is a large cancer treatment centre. Um, so we mainly see patients who, who come to us with, they've already got a diagnosis of cancer, the majority of them. Some of them come to us and they're still undergoing tests or investigations, but by far the majority have already had those kind of um, tests and investigations done in their local hospital, and they're coming to us for specialist treatment. Um, I work within the urology team, so I look after patients who've got prostate cancer, penile cancer, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, testicular cancer, um, and I work in a team that's sort of 10 of us, almost 10 of us now in the team, so it's very much a team approach, and we work, the Macmillan urology nurses, we look after patients who are having either surgical treatment but also patients who are having oncology treatments. So things um, like chemotherapy, radiotherapy, immunotherapy. So we follow patients all the way through the treatment pathway 
hope you know and the aim is to give them that continuity really through the, all the different treatment modalities along the way that they've got some you know constant point of contact on the 30th of june 2022 that's when i was diagnosed with prostate cancer and at that point it was life-changing for me and uh you played a part in this. Uh, I've shared it with you and, uh, and other members of your team that people from within the Christie and everyone from front face security through to urologist, oncologist, every single person I've come into contact with is they've been guiding shining angels for me and you've been one of them. So when it became... I said public for me, uh, it became very private where I never shared it with my dad or my family, one of my immediate family, which which was, uh, so this is the first time I'm actually coming out publicly and sharing this information. But mm. Mandy, what what is the role of a specialist nurse and how do you support patients? Okay, so we... We sort of work as part of the wider urology team. Um, we have specialist training, um, obviously, in the, the different treatments that patients might undergo. But specifically, the, the sort of things we're kind of looking at are sort of the wider impact um, that a diagnosis and, and the treatments might have on someone's life and trying to support patients through that, put the right kind of advice and information and support around them. Um, whether that's sort of practical support, whether it's managing symptoms, whether, you know, things like uh, an impact on their working life, for example, and, you know, if someone's self-employed and they're not going to get sick pay, what kind, putting them in touch with the people that can give them the right financial advice, because we know that a cancer diagnosis will impact every aspect of someone's life. Um, we are specially trained as well in sort of supporting patients from a psychological perspective. Um, you know, it's very distressing. It's a very, you suddenly sort of faced with your mortality. Um, some patients cope with this better than others. Um, we have a lot of um, specialist training and communication skills, supporting patients with psychological distress, assessing people's mental health. Um, are they struggling with anxiety and depression? Do they need support from that angle? And of course, patients who come with cancer may have other pre-existing conditions that might impact on their ability to cope with all of these things. So they may have other physical things wrong with them. They may have a pre-existing mental health uh, challenge. Um, and our role is really about advice and support. It's about plugging in with other teams, um, whether that's the GP you know, in primary care, whether it's other other specialist teams that the patient may be under um, or referring them in to other other teams for support and trying to sort of pull that all together be a sort of central linchpin because it's very often very complex the pathways are often very complex and straddle many hospitals before they get to us and then if they're under a number of other teams as well it's trying to sort of manage the, co the coordination and the communication between all of those teams um, and just just being at that con that sort of contact point so that they can come to us, they're not getting passed around from pillar to post, being told, oh, it's not me you need to speak to, it's this person, that they come to us. And then if we're not the right person, we take that concern, we go to the, the right person and we come back to the patient with whatever information they need. Um, so it's, it's, it's just about building a relationship, really, where you can share whatever's coming up for that person, whatever the, the, the challenges are or the concerns that we can not necessarily solve them all, but, um, you know, to try and work on what we can address, where we can make an impact and, and plugging them into the right people to do that. Any concerns that I've ever had, I just reach out and there's always an helping hand out there, which has been wonderful. And it came in many different guises. Of course, my needs and wants were different to many. Some may struggle, men may struggle more than others, but regardless, we're still living with the issue. And for little on 500 days, 495 days, known days of knowing that I've had cancer, uh, it was like a cloud over my head and 
not a pleasant experience, but to, to know someone's out there just in case you need to, to reach out is very reassuring. Uh, so because of the issue I've had with prostate cancer, what is prostate cancer? So first of all, I'll, we'll talk about what the prostate is. Um, so the prostate is something that only men have, not women. Um, it's usually the size and shape of a walnut and it sits just underneath the bladder and it goes around the water pipe. So the urethra is the water pipe that comes out from the bladder, out through the penis, and it drains, that's the, the urine drains out through, through that. And also when men ejaculate, the semen comes out through that tube as well. So the prostate is a gland and the main job of the prostate is to produce a lot of the fluid that makes up the, the semen, the fluid that carries the sperm out of the body. Um, so that's what the prostate is. And a cancer of the prostate, um, similar to cancer of anywhere else in the body, it's related to something going wrong with the cells. So the cells are the sort of microscopic building blocks of, of you know, every part of our body, every organ, all the connective tissue, everything. And as cells die, our body replaces them. There's, you know, constant sort of maintenance work going on. And that cell turnover is happening at different speeds in different parts of the body all the time. Um, and cancer is when the cells that are, you know, that are, uh, replacing the previous ones, something goes a little bit wrong um, when they start growing and then they start to grow in an uncontrolled way. That It can happen anywhere. It can happen in any part of the body. Um, and, yeah, so, that, so that's essentially it's when the sort of genetic code or the information inside that cell telling it the instructions, if you like, of what to do, something goes a little bit wrong and then it just starts reproducing and, you know, eventually grows into a lump big enough that someone can feel or causes a problem or um, that they you know it causes it can cause a symptom um, that people can feel often in prostate cancer um, there might not be any symptoms though um, so so that's the difficulty for those that don't have signs of which I didn't I used to think it was aches and pains historically I'd it's all either neurological. Uh, for men that don't have signs, what, what what should they be looking out for? What concerns should actually, if you like, trigger some form of investigation for them to then go to the to the GP? So, so some men might have symptoms such as difficulty passing urine or difficulty having a wee. Um, for others, it could be. Um, in a more sort of advanced presentation, it could be bone pain, um, new aches and pains that don't go away, um, perhaps in your back, your hips or your pelvis, that, you know, something new, a significant change um, for you from your normal. Um, we know in in men, it's it's over the age of 50, really, where the, the risk kicks in. Um so that's when, you know, we'd want to start thinking about that. We know in um, certain ethnic uh, minority groups, the, the risk is higher. So you talked about a risk, I think, earlier of one in eight um, men in the UK will get can prostate cancer at some point in their life. But we know that for um, black men, for example, it's one in four. So for that group, um, it's an increased risk really from the age of 45. So some of this depends slightly on your background and, and obviously family factors. There are, you know, there can be genetic um, impacts on this as well. So in terms of sort of assessing someone's risk, it's very individual. Um, and there's a number of things that would factor into that. But certainly if you've got symptoms, um, new symptoms that are worrying you, either the, you know, waterworks symptoms that we've discussed or new aches and pains that aren't going away, that are worrying you and you know then it's good it's always good to get those things checked out and obviously the 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 risk then increases with age the the older we get because then the older all our cells are and the the more likely you know when all these cells are replicating that something something just goes a bit awry with one of them um but yeah it's good and and i think having that conversation with your gp um they can then talk to you about what you're risk factors might be and counsel you about you know whether or not 
to proceed with whether it's a blood test, you know, it'd be a blood test first of all, an examination, and then more invasive tests if that's required. Well, you mentioned about aches, pains, mine were were insignificant. I've lived with aches and pains, excuse me, uh, but lower back, pelvic issues started to become more prevalent. Now, whether that be age, whether it be wear and tear, would be unknown, but it initially all started off with very little pain. There was very, very few signs that there were issues, but it was only because I started to become more, I guess I started to catastrophize every ache and pain because it mm. just seemed to link. And then, you know, and I'm starting to put the pieces together now, going back over 12 months where every all the signs you've just mentioned, I was actually living them. So... Now, so what tests are done for men suspected of having prostate cancer? Um, well, the first, the first thing is you, you know, your GP would want to take a full history from you um, about symptoms, or like you say, it might be part of an MOT or a, you know, a well man check. You know, often, um, often men get invited for a well man check when they turn fifty by the GP, and they'll be looking at, you know, lots of risk factors for heart disease and things, checking cholesterol, etc. And one of the tests they might um, offer is a PSA blood test. Um, and PSA stands for prostate-specific antigen. Um, and it's a chemical that can be measured in the blood. It's secreted specifically by the prostate gland. And generally speaking, the a high result out of range, the, the normal range is age-dependent. So it will depend on your age as to what the normal number should be. But the GP is looking at, you know, whether your result is within the normal range for your age group. And if it falls outside that, if it's raised, then they will be considering whether further investigation is needed. The difficulty with the PSA is it isn't specific enough to tell us that. So a high result does not mean you have cancer. And a normal result does not mean you don't. Um, it's not. It's not that black and white. But it's. It's a way of sort of that first level screening. And then you would, if the results high, um, then you, you want to rule out things like urine infection to make sure that's not impacting because you know that that can put the result up. But assuming um, that there's no infection there, the GP is probably also going to examine the prostate. Um, which is the delightful, um, you know, finger up the back passage because that's where the prostate's located. Um, and they're feeling there to feel the size of the prostate. Does it feel enlarged? Um, does it feel sort of soft and spongy? Does it have a nice regular sort of curve to it? Or does it feel hardened? Um, are there any obvious nodules? And th those two things together will determine then whether the GP feels it's appropriate to refer you into a specialist to be considered for a biopsy. And that's the definitive way to find out whether there's cancer there is to take a biopsy, which means inserting um, a needle um, and taking some samples, small sort of cores of tissue of the prostate gland and looking at them under the microscope to see whether they look normal or, or whether they've um, become cancerous. I've been through that process twice my first uh, bi uh, the biopsies and diagnosis was there was a out of 19 samples there were a couple if you like of rogue cancerous cells and i was on uh, what was called active surveillance it was only after the second biopsy which was 12 months hence i had the first biopsy on the 1st of june 22 and then my second biopsies were done on the uh, and it was May of the following year, this year, actually. And they found one of those cells had started to get a little bit excited. And at that point was I come off the active surveillance and I now needed to take a more of a proactive step to what, I, what other options now have I got rather than being static and allowing things to develop. And so I then went to see an oncologist and, uh, urologist on which option was best for me is prostate cancer hereditary um there can be sort of family factors i should say actually going back to the tests 
that we do at the beginning, what I didn't mention was um, typically we'd do an MR scan which probably would have been part of your active surveillance protocol, actually, that as, a, alongside a biopsy, usually prior to the biopsy, we would do an MR scan to see if there's any area that obviously looks abnormal within the prostate, um, partly because obviously that doesn't involve sticking needles in people. So you'd want to do any kind of test you can that's not invasive first. Um, but then if there is an area that looks obviously abnormal, they can target that area when they take the biopsy and try rather than sort of trying to find a needle in the haystack. If they can actually see an area, they can, you know, target that area for the biopsy to try and make sure they get a sample of, of this area that looks like it might be the culprit for the problem. But in terms of your question about can it be hereditary? So we know there are genetic mutations that can be associated with a higher risk of prostate cancer. And you may have heard of the BRCA1 and 2 genes. Um, so there can be genetic links. But certainly if you have a family history of prostate cancer, so if your father or your brother has had prostate cancer, we know that that increases your risk. Uh, also, in, in terms of the BRCA genes, if your mother or sister have had breast cancer or ovarian cancer, that would mean you statistically at a higher risk um, potentially as well. So again, it's about sort of looking at those factors. And some of that can be because of the genetic, you know, you share that genetic code and if there's a mutation there, but also um, it's recognising that, you know, within a family, you also tend to live in a similar environment, eat the same diets, you know, so some of those factors are going to be at play as well with, within families, but there, there are genetic links there. Yeah. And we're learning more about those all the time. Lovely little segue into you mentioned foods and are there any certain food groups that lower the risk of someone getting prostate and equally other food groups that actually increase the risk of getting prostate cancer um, in this case? There isn't strong evidence around this. Um, there's sort of evidence to suggest that being overweight increases the risk of a more advanced prostate cancer or the more aggressive prostate cancer. Um, there's, you know, that you can read certain literature where, you know, various things like tomatoes and different things are kind of suggested, but the evidence isn't strong. Um, it's sort of, yeah, it's not really clear from the evidence and the evidence is quite limited um, regarding any individual food that could, you know, reduce or increase your risk. There's a suggestion that sort of mod moderating the amount of dairy food that you take um, could be good. But again, it's, it's all, the evidence isn't strong. So it's really, I think the emphasis is more around the same kind of healthy eating advice that we would give anyone in terms of lowering your cardiovascular risk, so reducing your risk of heart attack and eating five portions of fruit and vegetables every day, eating plenty of fiber, moderating your alcohol intake, don't smoke, you know, try and keep your weight within um, a healthy range. Um, and all of the same advice that we'd really give to anyone um, regarding their general health. Um, but again, we're learning more about that all the time. And it might be that stronger evidence emerges um, around specific foods in the future. Are certain treatment options more effective than others? And how would someone determine the most suitable option? An individual would be guided by their oncologist um, or their urologist about what the most appropriate treatment options would be. There might be more than one option. Sometimes, um, often in early localised prostate cancer, patients might be offered either surgery or radiotherapy because they're both highly effective treatments. Um, often nothing to choose between them in terms of the cure rate, but the sort of side effect profile of that treatment or what's involved to go through that treatment is very different. And so in certain situations, patients will be given two you know two treatments and they pick whichever one sits more comfortably with them um 
obviously that would again be guided by if someone's got other factors at play there that they're not suitable for one or the other then it would be taken off the table um but assuming that you know there's no contra indications sometimes patients can choose um obviously often the the doctors will give a very clear indication of the right way forward and they'll be looking at a number of things to determine that a number of characteristics about your individual cancer because we know that prostate cancer is not just one thing there's a whole spectrum from a cancer that's been caught early within the prostate that's localized that we can deal with effectively by either removing it the the whole of the prostate gland in an operation or we can treat with local radiotherapy that might be delivered by inserting radioactive seeds. It might be delivered by external beam radiotherapy. There's different ways of doing that. Again, it would depend on how large the prostate is, any pre-existing waterworks problems. Um, but in terms of you know, all the characteristics that the, the doctors will be considering, they're looking at what the cells look like under the microscope how how mutated the cells are um what do the scans look like is this cancer confined how much of the prostate is involved is it coming out through the capsule of the prostate into adjacent structures is it spread locally is it in lymph nodes has it gone elsewhere into the body um often patients will have had patients will have had a staging scan so a ct scan or a bone scan or often both to check that we're very clear that there isn't cancer anywhere else because if there is clearly removing the prostate or zapping it with radiotherapy that's that's fine for the prostate but it's not going to deal with those other areas and we then need to be thinking about a treatment that's going to go all around the body um some kind of drug treatment um that's going to reach all those areas and perhaps areas that haven't yet shown up on a scan um that might pop up at a later date if we don't sort of preemptively treat them um, and, you know, so the, the doctors have various sort of scientific ways of assessing or sort of stratifying what level of treatment is needed on, on all of those characteristics, looking at how high was the PSA? Um, was it just slightly raised or was it, you know, very, very high? And all of those kind of help the doctors to decide how much treatment they need to offer at the beginning and do we think we're going to be able to deal with this with one treatment um or do we think we might need a sequence of treatments um to deal with this for someone so it's very individual um and that's why you know we we advise our patients it's great to talk to other people and there are lots of fantastic prostate cancer support groups out there and you know people derive great benefit from you know, feeling like they're not alone and sharing their stories, but it's being mindful that your cancer may not be the same as someone else's um, because it can then breed a huge amount of anxiety that why wasn't I, why wasn't I offered that treatment or trying to ensure that, that you understand the exact, you know, what does your cancer look like? And, and that's why this particular treatment package has been offered to you. I can endorse what you're saying because I had, I had options. Spoke to an oncologist who was very clear, uh, very transparent around the treatment option. And then straight after that, I spoke to a urologist. Again, very, the clarity around both options was very easy, very palatable. But like you've just said there, Mandy, it's, I think it's important also to take your own your own advice. A good friend of mine, he had exactly the same procedure. And uh, although it different, but he had prostate cancer and he dealt with it, he had the operation. So uppermost in my mind is taking his his thoughts and opinions and then basing off what I wanted to do was it turned out where I just had the operation. But having the options available, which was nice, certainly having chit-chats with people who were already well-versed in this subject, specialists like yourself. And then equally, it's nice to know that you're not on, the, you're on, you're on, your, you're on your own journey, but having people where you can hold that, you reach out and whatever procedure. What are some of the side effects after having different types of treatment? Um, well, obviously it would depend, it would depend on, the, on the treatment in terms of the particular sort of 
um, package, if you like, of potential effect, the collateral damage. So, you know, that's the, that's the problem is we have excellent treatments for prostate cancer, but they all do a great job of getting rid of the cancer, but there is collateral damage always. And it's sort of preparing people for those, what's likely to lie ahead and how, what can we do to manage those? Some of them are going to be short term. Some of them might be longer term. Some of them might be things that, um, you know, men are going to have to learn to manage for the rest of their life. So, you know, it's it's imp really important, the, the counselling around that beforehand, so that people are making informed consent, particularly if they're choosing, if they've got an option between more than one treatment, then that is essentially what they're basing that decision on, because we've already chosen these are the, you know, these if, if one was better at dealing with the cancer than the other, we'd just tell everyone to have that one. But if, if there's a situation where there's a choice to be had, it's because there's nothing to choose in terms of cancer outcome here. So what we're looking at then is the collateral damage. So, for example, with prostatectomy, which is surgical removal of the prostate, an operation to take it out, the, the big things that take a hit there for all men are continence. So... Um, control of the urine, um, being able to, st you know, get to the toilet in time, being able to hold on to the urine and it not leak, that will take a big hit, as will sexual function. So by that, talking about a man's ability to get and sustain an erection um, for sexual intercourse. And essentially, sexual function takes a hit pretty much however, whatever treatment option you have to, to some degree or another, sexual function is always you know severely at risk that will depend on what the sexual function is like to start with um so if if a man is already having some degree of problem in that department it's it's only going to get worse and perhaps recovery is less likely but there are a number of treatments that we can offer following surgery to try and help recover that function as much as we can Depending on the extent of the tumour within the prostate, the surgeons will try wherever possible to spare the nerves that are responsible for um, erections. Um, but even if the nerves are spared during the surgery and they are able to, to leave them behind and not remove, remove them, we're talking sort of millimetres here in they're intimately related to the prostate, sort of like the skin on an onion. But if they are able to preserve those nerves, those nerves will get damaged in the surgical process and they can take 18 months to two years to recover if they're going to, and that's not guaranteed. So that's a, you know, that's a big thing for men, um, particularly the, you know, the younger the man that's faced with this surgery, obviously, speaking generally that you know the more of an issue that's that's likely to be but there are a number of treatments that they will be offered like I say to try and help um, restore that function over time following the surgery we have a specialist clinic which we offer around that and then in terms of continence we counsel all the men having surgery around pelvic floor exercises because that's the main way to try and get that control back. So we know that all men who have surgery will leak urine to some degree after surgery um, because we've disrupted the area around the neck of the bladder that's, you know, what, that, that keeps you watertight. And all of a sudden you need to rely on pelvic floor muscles, which women use. We don't have a prostate, but obviously men have never had to use, use those muscles. They're anat you're just your anatomy's completely changed. And all of a sudden you need muscles that you've not used before to sort of step into the breach. And like any any muscles, you know, if you want to develop a six pack or, you know, you're going to have to show up at the gym on a regular basis in a very consistent and disciplined way forever. Because, you know, it's use it or lose it with muscles and it takes you looking at sort of up to 12 weeks really to get those muscles going. So, it, you know, it can be many months so again, we work with try and get men going with those exercises at the point that they may make the decision to have the operation. So they get a little bit ahead of the game, start to embed it as a, a daily habit, you know, so get into the routine of doing that, tie that in with things you do morning and night so that it just becomes like second nature and you're not going to forget to do that. 
Um, so it's sort of building in those things as early as you can, really. And I think sometimes it's just around managing expectations. I'm talking from an experienced, I say, practitioner now. I've, I'm learning this new process. And I mentioned about being the new norm. But the software department, you know, this is more of a mental thing because my wife had said, look, cancer all been having little leaks here or there. The most important thing is that you, you're rid of cancer. And that's important. So I'd much prefer to have that. I would prefer to have no issues, but sometimes we've got to we've got to take something on the chin and crack on, if you like. And there's this onwards and upwards mentality rather than sat back and wallowing in pity. We've got to be positive about it. I had an operation to take my prostate out on the 18th of September. And then I've taken it as three stages post-op. Now I'm going through the second stage. So pre-op was very structured, all advice given in, in advance, what to do, being proactive about certain exercises, and then and then we we move along. But there are challenges, there's no doubt about it. But is it life or death? Well, I'd much prefer to be living and having a long playing record than a short playing one. What is it you get from your role? What do you enjoy most? What's the most rewarding thing about your role, Mandy? So, sort of problem solving. Some of it is, you know, around some of what we do is also around sort of managing that pathway, um, you know, in terms of making sure appointments line up in the right order so that you get the right, you know, the test before the appointment to discuss the result and things like that and not not the other way around which is quite that you know that's that's quite satisfying when you get the ducks in a row and it works but I think sometimes it's about you know you can't fix everything but you can usually do something to make it better for someone even if it's in a very small way and, and I think a lot of it it's just about communication and being honest and and managing expectations you know and a and, and that's quite satisfying because I think you sit, you know, obviously we've all experienced things when they don't go well and, and you learn from that and then you can sort of preempt it, um, you know, with other people so that, right. Okay. Well, next time I'm going to get ahead of that. And you can't necessarily make everything go well all the time, but I think you can, if you can tell people that you're going to have this test done and we're not going to probably not going to have the results for another three or four weeks, and that's going to be difficult and that's going to feel like a long time. And, you know, we don't like uncertainty and we know that the, the, you know, from the specialist nursing point of view, that that's when people need that support from us because they've had a test or they're waiting for a date for an operation or a scan or a procedure, or they're waiting to come back and hear about results. And a day to us feels like an eternity to that to that patient waiting at home. And we know what's happening. They just think it's all gone quiet and they're not hearing anything, have it been forgotten. And it's just sometimes just checking in with someone regularly or them feeling that they can check in with us and just be reassured that well, there isn't any news yet, but I can see that this has happened and this is where we are along the way. And we're all kind of on schedule and it's still lining up that we'll see you next week and it will all be, you know, it will all be okay. Um, and it's it's just that really, it's that's sometimes all people need. We can't wave a magic wand at everything, but I think it's it's just having that reassurance and sometimes just knowing that there's someone there that you can call. Um, but, you know, sometimes it is. I, th I think some of the most satisfying things for me are the being able to reduce the psychological distress around it. And a lot of that is to do with communication. Obviously, sometimes sometimes people need specialist support from a mental health team or a psychologist. But the majority of people if they've got you know it's building that relationship so that they feel like we're in good hands they they, they have that sort of trust and they, they feel that they're getting the information they need and the answers to questions when when they need them yeah i mean leading up to my operation so pre and post i can't tell you how reassuring it has been for me to actually have someone at the other end of the line uh, other end of a telephone, just it's the simplest of things. 
but having the clarity around. And I've left conversations. I've put the phone down, and it's put me in a slightly different place, you know, in regards to what I would deem to be a big issue is, in actual fact, it's, it's just simple. All you need is someone else out there who's been there so many times and experienced it. And I know there are general advice, but equally there's, it's very reassuring and has been from my perspective where, you know, I rang up and you were on the other end of the line in actual fact. And it was, it's the simplest of things, but what I thought was huge and massive because there's been several occasions where I've, where I travel and work, I go past a place where my mum's buried. There's been occasions where I've looked over and I'm thinking, I'm, I'm going to be coming in there shortly. And it's, it's horrible. It really is not a pleasant mm. experience. And I've seen the funeral cars and the coffin and I've, I've visualised being inside of it. And then within, and then I've had a little bit of a cry and a meltdown. And then within 20 minutes, you know, I brush myself off and, you know, just sorted myself out and crack on, come on, let's go again. And that really is the mentality. And I know it's, it's, it's easy to say, but we've got to get on with things and if we allow it. But so I'm, I know that you're, what you're sharing is not, they're not just words. These are things that do actually operate and work within the Christie. And I'm sure there are many other hospitals around the country are doing similar. And it's just a wonderful resource. And the advice that comes back is so simple, but it's so effective. And I think the, the biggest take home for me is that people on the, on the other end of the line are actually listening and listening with intent to learn to then provide the necessary and bespoke information or advice required for their individual. Uh, I've got another question for you. What are some questions you wish men would ask more frequently regarding prostate cancer? I don't know if I've, I don't think I have questions that I wish men would ask necessarily. I think what we find difficult is, and sort of you might be able to help me with this <laughs> is it's difficult best. sometimes to get men to engage and we provide a lot of information sort of all along the way and you will have been in receipt of this um you know we give a lot of information verbally in in clinic appointments and then we'll back that up with leaflets literature signpost people to websites and think you know good quality websites like macmillan or prostate cancer uk so and you know and that makes us feel we're doing a, a, a great job of giving all the information but then what we will often find at subsequent appointments is that just because we've given that information to a man does not mean that it has been received <laughs> and it has not landed. And that, you know, and often that's just because that's just a marker of this, you know, this individual is just on the ceiling with anxiety. They are terrified. It's stressful coming into a hospital, you know, even if you're just going for a blood test, never mind if you're coming into a cancer hospital to talk about you know, treatment for your cancer, it's stressful parking, you know, we know that people are pumped with adrenaline when they come to see us. So, you know, it's great if people bring someone else to be a second pair of ears. But it's, I, I think the difficulty is, we, you know, we've looked at different ways of like when to give the information and to try and spread it out across different appointments and, you know, not to go too much into information about treatments at the same visit when we've just given someone the news about their biopsy results, because, you know, that's a no-brainer of the, you know, people just don't hear anything after the results. But it's, um, you know, and, I, and we had a conversation, you know, on our, our last Zoom chat where I was talking about giving out, you know, just the simple thing of the leaflet with you know, the, the little bit of information about this is our service and please contact us if you've got a worry. Um, and you were sort of like, oh, yeah, I don't know where I put that. And it's that's the difficulty is we it's working out how to give the information. I think that I think and I think the true answer is there's no one size fits all here. It's you constantly trying to work out with each person that's in front of you what their communication needs are. Um and how they how they're wired and 
but you know it's difficult it's really difficult um even when you sort of leave that open door of please go go home read the leaflet and then come back to me with any questions and the majority majority of men don't i'm one of them they're actually I'm laughing and chuckling inside, not laughing at you. I'm laughing inside and laughing, I guess, with you to a certain extent where all the information is given or, or the relevant information was given, but I literally didn't pay any attention to it. Uh, having someone around you as a second pair of ears or eyes actually is great advice because when I found out I got prostate cancer, my daughter came with me. Unfortunately, my wife got COVID the day before, otherwise Jan, my wife, would have been with me. And then when I found out uh, in November, November 8th, when I came back into the Christie to get my results post-operation, uh, I met with the surgeon uh, to give me good news. You know, I know I've still not got all, the all clear, but I'll be monitored closely by the Christie and people from within that uh, that wonderful hospital that'll help. I still wasn't listening. So having that second pair of ears is great advice. But all the literature, from my perspective, an individual thing, I, I didn't want to know much about prostate cancer. The more I felt as I get to know about it, and I'm not suggesting I don't know about prostate cancer, and I was completely oblivious, that's not the case. But I didn't want to know the all the nuances. I didn't want to know about... I just wanted to know... When's my next appointment? And I used to take it day by day or step by step. I didn't want to think too far. And I took as little as I felt was necessary because otherwise I started to think too deep. There's been on occasions where I've been on holiday with my family and it was just a very unpleasant experience for me to deal with it. And the way I dealt with it, I'd just go silent. i just go in silent mode and... It's challenging, but now it's different. You know, the, the cloud's lifting for me so far, and I'm really pleased that I'm being able to talk about this publicly now because, as I said at the beginning, my aunts and uncles, my dad, my sister didn't know about it. They didn't know I had prostate cancer because they've got their own issues. You might find out now for podcast, but I'm happily uh, on the other side of knowing that. I think I've got a positive result from the operation. Now, to sum up everything we spoke about, if you had to write a list of important things to help someone suffering or recovering from prostate cancer, what's going to be on your list? A lot of it's what you've said really about, it's a balance between, you know, what you've said about, you know, obviously being grateful um, and positive in, in your outlook, but not, not in a dismissive way um, because... You know, yeah, it's great that, you know, hopefully that, you know, we've had a good outcome and there's no sign of the cancer. But like I said, there's always collateral damage and that might not be physical damage. Sometimes it's psychological. Sometimes people are just, you know, they come out the other side and their head's a bit mashed. And that's can be that can be the longer lasting effect sometimes. And it's striking that balance, I think, between trying to be upbeat and, you know, we we ring uh, for example, we ring men a few days after they've had their, their catheter removed after the surgery. Um, so typically the catheter would stay in for seven to 10 days to let the, the, the new join heal of where the water pipe's being restitched to the bladder. And we know that, that, you know, that appointment where we take that catheter out, that's when the man will start leaking urine to some degree. And that's a difficult time. So we'll follow that up a few days later, one of our team will call and check in and say, how's it going? Um, are you doing the pelvic floor exercises? And it's an opportunity for, for that man at that time. Often that's a low point because that's the first time the reality we've been telling them all the way through, right back from when we saw this chap, probably a good two months or more ago, you will be wet when we take the catheter out. But like you've said, I think some of it's self-preservation is you only take on board what you can cope with at any given time and often the focus is the next thing getting through the next thing and I'll worry about that when I get to that bit and then you get to that bit and oh my goodness it comes as a shock and 
it's not because you haven't been told it's just because you just haven't really gone there you know in your mind and it's then really about giving that reassurance that don't panic we always knew this was going to happen you know actually you're doing really well you know some some men it's so much worse than this you're only five days down the track don't worry keep doing those exercises this is normal for now you know it's not all gone terribly wrong and just that sort of reassurance again we can't make it go away it's going to take time to to sort this problem out but it's just that reassurance that you know it's okay this is what this is where we are right now this is what we expect and yeah just that just that kind of reassurance really and and sort of acknowledging that it's difficult but it's manageable come on we can you can do this it's fine and striking that balance really between support and right moving forward I guess uh giving people whatever they need to move forward there are always worse things going on on the planet and uh you know we only register the information when it's relevant to us but sometimes we're dismiss advice which where we're at times depending upon whether that where we register the advice to be relevant in the moment and whether we can do anything about it. And it's just knowing that people within the Christie best in Manchester has been, it's been fantastic. And I said it right at the top. I, I've my experience, although I don't like hospitals, I've no interest in going to hospitals. I don't like going to them. I know that when I have to go, people like yourself and there are, there are many within that institution that you work have, have played such a an integral role to make my experience as positive as they could possibly make it. And so, Mandy, I've got to thank you ever so much and everyone else within the Christie. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been it's been wonderful to have you with us. And I'm sure I hope, you know, the listeners, albeit this is a slightly different podcast to the ones we normally do. Really all we want to do, and I know you and I have spoke about it, and Nick, uh, who's also contributed, Nick Molyneux from the Christie within the comms team. I would just hope as we just wake fellas up a little bit, and if you do have any signs or any signals or any uh, issues with passing urine or go and get tested, just get it sorted out and get there, because I didn't do that, unfortunately. Came along and at the right time, and I got, I got a very quick diagnosis. So I'm waffling on a little bit here, but I do thank you. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. That that means a lot. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Golders podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode and you haven't already subscribed, please do so. Your continued support is highly appreciated and it means so much to us knowing that the content that's being produced is providing value in people's lives. If you would like to know more or get more information from us, you can follow us on Twitter at Gold Dust Podcast and also you can visit our website at thegolddustcoach.com. Thank you everybody.